I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The FT Pension tax relief and final salary pensions under threat again. Why the stock market can't fix our retirement problems and how to get exposure to an asset that something could rise fivefold. All this to come in this week's FT Money Show. I'm Jonathan Neely and I'll be giving you all the money news this week in downloadable form with the help of my FT colleagues Joe Cumbo. Hello. Tanya Poli. Hi. And Norma Cohen. Hello. In around 10 days' time, the Chancellor will stand up to deliver what is usually called the Autumn Statement, but this year might be better termed the Winter Statement. In times gone by, the Autumn Statement was all about government expenditure, whereas the budget was all about taxation and government revenue. These days, though, the line between the two is blurred, and new tax policies and initiatives are frequently announced in the Autumn Statement. The leaking, briefing and speculation about this year's has already begun. The Conservatives, we are told, are implacably opposed to any form of property tax, which their coalition partners are said to favour. The Tories are concerned that it would hit voters in the south of the country too hard and would not even raise that much new money. Instead, they look set to fiddle with the pension system, not for the first time. Pensions are an easy target. Many people struggle to understand the complicated rules around tax reliefs and allowances and so tend to notice less as the government nibbles away at them. It's a fairly safe bet that there will be more tinkering this year. Joe Cumbo has been talking to pensions experts and reading the Whitehall tea leaves this week. Joe, what's the most likely option for change? Um, what the FT has learned this week is that on the table, and I uh, stress those words, on the table could be further cuts to the annual allowance, and that is the maximum you can put into a pension each year and get tax relief on it, and it's currently £50,000 per year, but we understand that could be uh, reduced to 40000 or even £30,000 a year, so less tax relief. Now, that allowance has already come down a lot in the past few years. It used to be well over £200,000. 255000 That was two years ago. Now, many people might be listening to this and thinking, oh, well, that doesn't affect me because, um, because I'm not loaded and I can't possibly afford to put even £5,000 a year into my pension, let alone 30000 But actually, these, these changes could affect a lot more people than, yes. than is commonly imagined. Why, why is Most that? Most definitely, because it's very straightforward if you're in a defined contribution scheme or saving into a personal pension or a self-invested personal pension, because what you put in is counted towards your 
annual allowance. It's fairly straightforward. But if you're in a defined benefit scheme, you're all, you also fall into the annual allowance rules. But the way that the allowance is calculated is more complex. It's based on how much your pension rights have increased over the year. And that's very sensitive to any uh, extra money that you might get through a promotion, for example, um, which can sort of tip you over uh, the annual allowance quite quickly. Now, I've spoken to actuaries this week and I was quite surprised, but they said to me even someone on as low as £30,000 a year but who has been working um, for at least sort of 20 to 30 years, or sort of long-term civil servants, for example, or even anyone in the private sector, could easily have built up rights uh, to the value of £30,000. So if that threshold was brought down to 30 k and that individual got a pay rise of £4,000, £5,000 a year, that would tip them over the annual allowance and they would face um, having that uh, extra contribution dragged back through their income tax. Okay, so this is a change that could affect hundreds of thousands or potentially even millions of people, yeah. And you've picked up some other news on final salary pensions this week. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, just breaking just in the last hour or so, the um, pensions minister has released the latest um, thoughts and thinking on the direction of workplace pension reform, anyone saving into a workplace scheme, whether it be final salary or defined contribution. He's trying to shake up the environment Um, to make it less risky for people saving into schemes at the moment. And the report which has come out today has uh, suggested a a couple of things, and one of which was quite interesting, is that anyone in a final salary scheme, potentially, if they leave that scheme, the employer might have an option to cut off that final salary benefit and give them cash instead uh, to take to the next pension scheme. The thinking behind that option is that it would give employers some more flexibility because they're facing big liabilities and this might give them an incentive to keep their final salary scheme open. Final salary schemes are more generous than the way um, schemes are going at the moment, which is defined contribution where the uh, employee takes all of the risk for saving and getting themselves an income. So the thinking is that, yes, let's do what we can to save final salary, but I think it could prove very controversial with the unions and with with anyone else who's sitting in a scheme and facing the prospect of not being able to keep that benefit if they move jobs. It could keep people in jobs or, you know, create more inertia in the job market. Okay. And just finally, if you are contributing to a self-invested pension or a defined contribution scheme, should you make additional contributions before December the 5th? We get this every uh, six months or so. um, And the advice, the sensible advice for anyone the advisors are telling me is that you were planning to make a contribution, it probably makes sense to bring it forward because if there is an announcement, it will be made on December 5 and possibly come into effect Um, in April next year. So if you were thinking about doing it, perhaps go and have a chat with your IFA. If you're in a final salary scheme, the situation's a little bit different. You need to speak to your HR department or your scheme administrator to, to determine your liability and to find out whether there is any room or scope or indeed potential liability if the threshold is reduced. Thanks, Joe. And you can find out more about your pension options by reading Joe's piece in this week's FT Money, where she also looks at the issue of state pensions for those people who are living overseas. Um, depending on where you live, you may not get an inflation-linked index each year. And you can keep abreast of all the autumn statement leaks, speculation and analysis right up until December the 5th at our website, www.ft.com forward slash money.
Still to come on the show, the volatile but exciting world of commodities investing. First, though, let's stick with the subject of retirement and specifically how we're going to pay for it. During the 1980s and 1990s, there was a huge stock market boom, which at the time seemed like it might go on forever. During the 1990s, for instance, the UK stock market returned an average of about 11% a year with dividends reinvested. This great bull market made society complacent. Companies stopped paying into their pension schemes, confident that market returns would pick up the slack. Gordon Brown famously mounted a huge tax raid on pension funds in 1997. Individuals forgot about retirement and focused more on consumption. But now, after 10 years of mediocre market returns and three years of rock-bottom interest rates, the chickens are coming home to roost. Company pension schemes are increasingly underfunded. Heavily indebted governments are worried about their huge future pension liabilities. And individuals are starting to wonder what their old ages are going to look like. These worries might ease if the market were to pick up strongly, but that's unlikely. To understand why, we have to look at demographics. The Financial Times is the only national newspaper to have a demography correspondent. Her name is Norma Cohen and she's in the studio with us now. Norma, how does demography influence stock market returns? It influences it several ways. When you have a very large bulge of working age people who are saving for their retirement through the stock market, that pushes stock prices up as it did during the 1980s and 1990s. And if we look at the numbers, we can see there's a very strong correlation between the number of people actively saving for a pension and price-earnings ratios in the stock market. Those were very good years for savers. Uh, But as the ratio of working population falls relative to the overall population, what you see is that people start to sell their equity investments and buy bonds, and that has helped to depress price-earnings ratios. And there are good reasons, uh, economists believe, that we will never again see the bull markets of the 1980s and 1990s, uh, certainly not for a generation, if ever. Is this problem unique to the UK or is this the case all around the, the Western world? It's hardly unique to the UK. And if you look at market performance in other markets, you'll see clear evidence that this is the case. In fact, relative to other industrialized economies, the UK is looking pretty good. Certainly, we're looking very good compared to our continental neighbors uh, who are forgetting to have children altogether. Uh, If you look at the U.S., which has similar demographics to ours, you will see that they too have, have had this demographic effect on their stock returns. And if you really want to see how this works, look no further than Japan, which uh, hit its demographic bulge and beyond much earlier than any other economy. They've been flailing for two decades now. If we can't boost our own stock markets, what about factors like um, migration of of workers um, from one country to another? And what about the glut of um, savings in, in emerging economies? Can't we harness that and put that to work in our in our markets. Well, let's talk about migration first, because in fact, part of the reason the UK is looking better than its neighbors, and part of the reason the US is looking reasonable, is because it does allow a policy of migration. What we've seen in the UK over the past decade has been a strong influx of migration from young women of working age, but also of childbearing age, who will eventually become tomorrow's workers who will help to pay our retirement pensions. It is a factor which can help. 
But over the long term, it's not a solution because one day those people will too retire and somebody will have to pay their pensions. So something has to has to give. Now, people look at China and, and rapidly emerging markets like China. What you don't understand, though, is that the demographics that are adversely affecting industrialized economies here in Europe and in America, uh, those demographics are affecting China Uh, perhaps in an even more severe fashion. China's working age population is set to peak at around 2020 and will start to fall very quickly thereafter, thanks in part to its one-child policy. That means that that glut of savings the Chinese have built up over decades are going to be dissipated as they retire. So if the stock market isn't going to save us and the Chinese aren't going to save us, what is the solution to our retirement crisis? There isn't a silver bullet that you can point to. There isn't a investment solution per se. It's going to be a combination of policies, none of which individually are terribly pleasant to contemplate. First, we, and as every other industrialized country uh, has done, will need to raise the retirement age and keep people in the, in the market working and producing longer. Second, people are going to need to save more for their own retirement and may need to pay more tax to compensate for somewhat more generous basic state pensions. But there's a fourth factor, and that is to harness all the human capital that we do have available to us. And what that requires are the adoption of family-friendly policies that make it possible for women to both have children as well as participate in the workforce. Rising levels of female workforce participation along with stable fertility rates ultimately over the very long term are something which are needed to make sure that we can afford to retire. Well, thank you, Norma, and let's hope George Osborne was listening to all that. You can read more about how population changes influence market returns and your retirement plans in this week's edition of your New Look FT Money. And by the way, thanks to all those who've sent in comments regarding our redesign. FT Money is a regular part of my Saturday mornings, and I like the new look and content, said Alistair Elliott in Brighton. Alex Galea in Woking remarked that the New Look FT Money section is improved in many ways and I like the Investors Chronicle highlights page. Although Michael Ross in Chester, commenting on Nigel Farage's piece last week, remarked that, quote, I don't want politics for breakfast. And finally today, we take a look at an often overlooked asset, silver. Most of the time, the so-called grey precious metal hides in the shadows of its more glamorous cousin, gold. But last week, fund manager Charteris made the startling prediction that silver prices could rise to $165 an ounce by 2015. That would represent a 400% increase on the current price, and in today's low-return world would certainly be a gain worth having. Tanya Poli has been looking at the various ways ordinary investors could get exposure to silver. Tanya, I suppose the most obvious way is just to to buy some silver, is that right? That's right. Um, basically, a lot of people say this is one of the safest ways of actually gaining exposure to silver um, by basically just going and buying. You can buy silver coins. Um, some of the most popular ones are the American Eagle, the Canadian Maple Leaf, and the Britannia. Um, and you can also buy um, buy bars. But there are a number of drawbacks of this. Even though it's like one of the cleaner ways to actually um, gain exposure, um, there are other costs involved that you need to probably factor in. So. Um, while if you buy a gold coin or bar, you won't be subject to VAT, um, it's not the same case with silver. You actually will have to pay VAT. Um, so that's another cost of 20% extra to actually bear in mind. Um, also, retail de- dealers, um, 
typically tend to charge a bit of a premium over the spot prices of silver. So you've got to factor that in as well. So sometimes it might be worth actually shopping around between different retail dealers to see what the best deal you can get on your price of silver. Um, Another approach of actually holding physical silver would be buying on the wholesale market. So this would only be available for investors who are looking um, to buy kind of to gain exposure to big silver bars. So most typically only um, trade around... um, you only be able to get access to um, large 1,000 ounce silver bars, um, which at the current prices are around sort of 20,000 pounds. So that's obviously for those who have a bit more money or you can have these different schemes um, on the internet um, where you can actually sort of gain a part of that ownership. So dealers like Billion Vault and ATS Billion have basically opened up this market to private investors a bit more. And if you buy this way, it's also worth noting that you actually won't be charged VAT. Okay, and they store the they store the bar on your behalf. Yes, so it makes it easy. I mean, you obviously will have to pay a slight insurance cost for that, and you know the storage, um, but that's usually not that high a price. Okay, and what about mining companies, mining shares? Are there any silver mining companies on the stock markets, or are there any funds that have large holdings in silver miners? Well, one of the largest silver producers is actually a um, Mexican um, company called Fresnillo. And another popular one is actually Hotschild Mining, which is a Peruvian silver producer. The benefit with Fresnillo is actually that it's listed on the London Stock Exchange, so it's a bit easier for um, UK investors to actually access. Um, the only problem with investing in silver mining companies is that it's not a very pure way of actually getting exposure to silver. You've got other, obviously other risks involved, such as the fact that you know production risks, are they going to meet their production targets? You've also got management risk, are they, is, is the management actually going to do what they've said they would do? Um, so you actually have a lot more validity and when it comes to actually gaining exposure to silver this way. So that's definitely something to bear in mind. Um, that kind of rings true also when you buy a actively managed fund because they typically tend to invest in um, mining stocks. And again, the problem is, is that it's not, again, a very pure way of actually gaining exposure to silver because they tend to buy um, overall mining companies. So that might give you some exposure to gold, platinum and other various precious metals. OK, and also many readers own owned gold exchange traded commodities. These are things that track the um, physical price of gold, but which are listed on the stock market like shares. Is it also possible to buy silver ETCs? Yes, it definitely is. I mean, this is a one of the sort of maybe more attractive ways for private investors to actually gain exposure. Um, there's two types. There's ones, um, ETCs that actually um, invest in sort of physical holdings of silver. And then there's other sort of more synthetic products which actually sort of use swap-based arrangements to replicate the um, silver, the returns of the silver market. Um, so most of the advisors I've been speaking to this week have said that they tend to prefer the physical holding, um, the ones that actually hold physical um, silver, because they tend to be safer. While with um, these synthetic ones, you tend to have sort of counterparty risks involved. Um, this is actually quite a cheap way to actually gain exposure to silver. Um, most of the ETCs um, typically charge about between 0.4% to 0.5% in annual management fees. Um, I mean, the other cost that you need to bear in mind is that, you know, obviously the cost of actually buying into the uh, into the ETC, as well as some of them have a tracking error as well that you need to bear in mind. But two of the most popular ones um, that are on the market are the iShares Physical Silver ETC and the ETFS Physical Silver Okay, and finally, what about the risks of um, of, of silver and indeed uh, other commodities? Well, I guess with silver, um, even though a lot it often tracks a similar price to what what's happening with the gold market, it tends to be so much more volatile than its than its 
um, more expensive cousin. Um, basically, a lot of people would have um, had their fingers burnt last year. Um, we saw the price of silver reach sort of 30 year highs, but then within a matter of two weeks, um, it plunged, the price of silver plunged 35%. So it's one of those things that you've got to kind of realize that it's a volatile investment. It's not necessarily going to be the safest way. Um, but the other thing is that it actually doesn't produce any income either. Okay, so no dividends, but super potential capital gains on offer there. Thank you very much, Tanya. And you can read more about investing in silver in the how-to page of this week's FT Money, one of the many new features we introduced as part of our redesign. This week, we've also got city grandee Terry Smith comparing investment to the Tour de France, suggestions on the best ways to put £100,000 to work, and views from Investors Chronicle on Majestic Wine, Ocado and Enterprise Inns. All this appears on our website too. You can find it at ft.com forward slash money. And you can still read and comment on our latest blog posts at ft.com forward slash money matters. We'll be back next week with another financial lowdown in downloadable form. But until then, it's goodbye from me and my FT colleagues, Tanya, Joe and Norma. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.